five and picks, you know, that, that's one of those things where right now it's kind of a comeback ruining my beautiful record, but you know, this is going to be a card that uh, tries its best to follow it up. I think the main, the main event here with Dominic Reyes and Yuri Prakash has a lot riding on it. You know, we could definitely big these fighters up in terms of their history and just MMA in general. And that's going to be fun when the time comes here. But you know, when you look at the prelim, it's just a lot of dangerous fighters, fighters that love to throw. If you want to look at the UFC matchmaking for the last two weeks, I mean, we had the Shanghai PI, the group of fighters, you know, a lot of them did lose but i mean they all lost but at the same time i think we saw them get those jitters out of the way see what it's like to fight on the big time stage and they all really did try to go for broke there right against against fighters that we really did say that should have certain advantages uh, even with, with uh you know liang nah, i think that was the fight where we pretty much said fight the distance stay disciplined don't get in close and you know the moment she got in close she got boxed up really close in the in the clinch taken down at will and was even trying to get out of there in the first round but then just exhausted right like she just couldn't she could barely keep going and you look at the rest of them i i think that's something that they're gonna have to learn that this is this is a whole new level a whole new ball game so you know even outside of that main card like we said so many fun fights and hopefully this one holds up to that bargain we got the first one on the docket here is luke sanders and felipe colaris and it's kind of a difference of styles, right? We know cool hand Luke. What's he bringing to the table? That big, powerful uh, left hand. I think in the past we've seen it find success. And, yeah, I, you know, I think at this point you have to realize that the USC is a, a different ball game, right? Even in terms of people's chins and the way to avoid, say, big one-handed type strikers that are coming in like that. But Kolaris is one of those guys that's had a really iffy UFC career, right? We're going to see him use some body kicks, but taking this fight to the ground and up against the fence is probably his best bet. You look at his fight with Montel Jackson. I mean, he got taken down 11 times. Uh, he definitely was not in his best place when it came to the striking, but I did like what he kind of did at a distance. The chin was there and that's going to be really important in this fight because I think the difference there is, Montel Jackson and Luke Sanders, like if he can ride this fight out to the later rounds and maybe get a bit more momentum on his side, this is a fight that can maybe go his way. When you look at Luke Sanders, one of his best performances ever was probably the Head and Barrow fight. And when you look at the Head and Barrow fight, you know, the first round didn't really go his way. And Head and Barrow is one of the best first round fighters you'll see. But when you take a look at the adjustments that were made in the second round, and if you go back and watch that fight ever, you can even watch the corner pretty much tell Luke Sanders exactly what he needs to hear. And it's like, get by these kicks, get by these lung lunging strikes and start landing your own. And, and the moment he started doing that, I mean, he was finding a home for his big power shots and Brow has that questionable chin now and he dropped them pretty cleanly. And, and I think that was a, a significant example of where, you know, good coaches and cornermen who are watching the fights and being able to see those details are able to convince the fighter that, like, this is clearly your ticket to win. You need to take it. You need to push. You need to get by these kicks. And that's exactly what he did. And so, you know, funny enough, a very similar fight against not really a, an ex-UFC champion at bantamweight. So in that sense, you will kind of want to give a bit of an edge to Luke Sanders here because I think the striking will be on his side. Uh, unfortunately, you know, when it comes to the grappling, it's going to have to go the other way. Cause I do think that Kolaris, if he uses some distant kicks, if he can maybe get this cardio down, work the body, start getting up against the fence more, completely eliminate that power left hand. You know, he has a shot at winning this fight, you know, make him fight your fight, especially for those rounds two and three, where maybe you can start riding his body, get his back, things like that. I mean, Luke Sanders should be a pretty good wrestler. So this is where I think the wrestling and grappling classic matchup um, could have some play, but it, 
it's hard to go against Luke Sanders right now. It, you know, I, I don't like the three fights uh, in just that little bit of time and that uh, much time. But at the same time, I think this is one for him to win. And unfortunately, if he doesn't, I think we're going to see on both ends really uh, to be on the hot seat and be fighters that the UFC doesn't really need to keep around anymore, which should make this a, a pretty good barn burner fight for both guys trying to get that UFC win. For me, I am leaning Luke Sanders. I, I don't think that he's going to have too much trouble in the striking department. I think the wrestling should be able to keep it on the feet for as long as he needs to. And, you know, we saw the finishing ability in the second round as well against Barrow. So we know that as long as he has those opportunities, listens to his corner, manages his cardio, there's a lot of advantages here uh, in this fight for him. And so, you know, I, I'm going to take quickly take a look at the lines here because I haven't yet. And frankly, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Claris is a favorite just based on some of the body of work, but at the same time, you know, uh, it's just a little tough to go against the guy who's, who's seen a lot more. And yeah, I mean, you know, plus 115 for Claris and minus 140 for Luke Sanders. So again, not surprised at all. Uh, I, I do not believe that Luke Sanders would have been any close, anywhere close to a minus 200. That's for sure. So, you know, looking at this line, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. And if I had to pick, I'm going with Luke Sanders here uh, at the same time, you know, body kicks, Keep that distance until you can really feel that need to push. Get it up against the fence and work some of that jujitsu, and maybe we can see an upset for them. Team Nagara fighter and uh, Felipe Colares. Next, we got uh, fellow Indian Canadian brother and uh, KB Bular uh, going up against the Greek uh, Andreas Nikolaidis, and both these guys have have pretty interesting UFC experiences so far, right? You know, I felt like KB Bular had a lot of opportunity to fight last year, but injuries to himself, pulled out fights, things like that with other fighters. Uh, it just, we only got to see him once and it was against a guy like Tom Breeze, who, who's definitely making a second coming right now in the UFC and, and looked absolutely phenomenal, right? That jab that he landed on KB Bullard dropped him completely. And frankly, before that, it looked like, uh, Tom Breeze is striking is at a new level here. Health wise, he looked absolutely insane. So I think that was a tough fight from KB Bullard from the get go. You know, one thing I really liked about in terms of size and length, you know, he's got the ability to land those kicks he loves. Maybe throw with a bit more volume and speed. You know, I, I think that in this fight, he's he's got that a bit more on his side. Watch out for those spinning attacks because I think Andreas Mikolidis, from an overall striking perspective, I think he's kind of wild and crazy. And he loves these spinning kicks. If you go back and watch tape on him, every single fight is just spinning kick here, spinning kick there. And for me, I'm always like questioning kicks because, you know, even if you go do, go do a kicking workout right now and see what's worse, you know, shadow boxing or doing a kickboxing workout because – Throwing kicks can get tiring, and and for me, it's unless you're really good at them and can manage, you know, your your energy for three rounds. I, I think they're really, really, you know, a tough thing to throw. That's why leg kicks, cap kicks, these are the best options. They can take away a power uh, a power leg from another fighter, and you can kind of incorporate them into your game to attack the body and attack the low attack. So, for me, those are the things that I, I would kind of watch out for. And and in this case, you got two guys that are kind of slower style. You know, pick their spots, throw a lot of kicks, not a lot of crazy good combos, you know, and I think at least they match up well that way, which makes this fight a bit closer than than maybe some might give credit to. And I, I'm trying to think of a favorite that I really would have to go to with Nikolaitis just based on power and experience, things like that. And, you know, the one thing about Kebu Boulard is, you know, he comes out of a Canadian camp that actually does have really good, you know, UFC up and comers like Tanner Bozer, who just took a setback against Andre Larvsky, not a not a big issue, right? So, so that's where I think like their relationship, you know, he talked about how his relationship with Tanner Bozer is what kind of sparked the fuel again for him and how his accounting job wasn't really what he wanted to be doing. And, and Tanner Bozer, like, you know, what are you doing with your life? Let's 
let's go here. Let's take this more seriously and see what we can do. And so I think with all of that in mind, you know, you have, you have Kibi Bular who's trying to make those dreams come true with probably pressures of, uh, of the rest of his life trying to say, you know, is this something you really want to get into? And I'm really excited to see if he can put something together against the fighter where let's be honest, like Tom Breeze is such a battle test veteran and what he brought to the table in that fight, especially what he, you know, was trying to make a comeback fight. I mean, it's a tough fight for Kevin Bullard to take a guy who was actually supposed to be more of a contender series type of fighter, but beating a guy like Matt Dwyer kind of gave him an edge, even though Matt Dwyer was on a bit of a losing streak himself kind of gave him the edge to, to, to push into the UFC. So, you know, now he's getting that chance a bit quicker than some uh, John Jones esque if you will, but uh, at the same time, you know, Andreas Mikulidis now is going to present a bit more of a tougher task, another great kicker. And I think that if this fight hits the ground and things like that, he he should have the ability to kind of overpower KB Boulard. Now, in terms of a path to success, if KB Boulard is able to kind of control his energy, wait out that first round, I think that the energy levels of Andreas that's proven to be an issue for him might work in a KB's favor, right? You can go into the third round, maybe not take too much damage. Even if you're up against the clinch a lot and say that second round, you know, by half way you can maybe work in some some of your own game there to, to st steal that round and maybe take away that third for a good uh, a good decision win you know it's going to be tough to kind of dictate a fight where maybe you're used to finishing guys at, you know smaller promotions here in Canada things like that this is going to be one where people are probably expecting Andres Mikulidis to finish this fight so uh, you know I I'm not sure what the odds are going to look like let's take a look right now quickly and wow. Okay. So KB Bull are sitting at a plus 200 right now from what I'm seeing at a minus one as a minus two, 250 favorite from Ikelitis. I think that's a pretty intense line. You know, uh, when you look at some of the ways that, um, Mikulidis can lose the fight. I, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how this fight plays out outside the first round. If KB Bular can, 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 you know, withstand some of that damage, you know, we talk about it, you know, in the past, uh, Mikulidis is, uh, you know, debut against Buskowskis. Like he was kind of finished with those Travis Brown elbows and tried to make a point that it was illegal shots. But, you know, as he tried to get up, he couldn't fell right out of the cage as his trainer came to help him. How ironic is that? But, you know, falling out of the cage is automatically gets you out of your fight. Referee couldn't let it go on. That was a Buskowskis win. And now he comes into this fight against the guy with good length, good kicks. And I think that's going to be something similar that he fought against Buskowskis and has an opportunity to rectify that loss. But, you know, it's obviously not a makeup fight. I do think that these lines, you know, they are kind of itching. Uh, a bit closer at some places with the plus 180, but I mean, for Kevin Boulard to open as a plus 155 and see the line kind of go down from there with Andreas Mikulidis going all the way from a must one at minus 180 to a minus 250. I mean, you know, I think the difference there in style and just overall prowess is going to play a role, but again, energy cardio um, as fight go, fights go on is the biggest thing. And I think if KB can, can manage that and, and withstand that storm early, you could be looking at a surprise win here. All right. So if you've seen these videos in the past, if you followed us a little bit on Instagram, you kind of know that, you know, Loma Lukbumi, probably a, a fan favorite, if you will, over here. And she's actually had quite a good UFC career so far. And I think that in this case, you see that, you know, she's getting a bit more of that big prospect that's coming in, trying to make a huge splash. Look at Sam Hughes' career. I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? The, the Demopolis fight, you know, she was so close to becoming the LFA champion. So close. She was dominating the striking battle was getting all of the exchanges with Demopolis, you know, in her favor. But, 
you know, with a great grappler like that, you can't be in bad situations, especially in the fourth round. And there was only a few, you know, a few seconds left where she, she could have probably saved herself from, from that kind of a, a loss. But unfortunately that's exactly why we love MMA, right. Can dominate a fight for three, three and a half rounds. And all of a sudden a good jujitsu practitioner who gets you in a good place, just finishes the fight just like that. And so I think in this case, you know, you might have a Sam Hughes who's, who's learned from that. Right. I think if you look at her last win against Danielle Hindley, I mean, the other fighter took it on two, two weeks short notice. And, and there was a lot of things leading up to that fight for her, but, you know, pretty much got her in one of those nice, beautiful, uh, John Jones, Leoto Machida standing headlocks. And, uh, and those are the little, uh, wins that, you know, they, they're going to boost you no matter who, who they are, you know, fighters are fighters. And I think from that, she carried over pretty well, uh, for the rest of her LFA career. And that, and now is trying to make her mark in the UFC. And I think when you, when you look at the loss against Tisha Torres, doesn't Tisha Torres look like a completely different fighter now? I think there was so much potential in, in watching her fight normally. And against a size thing, Tisha Torres and Loma Lukbimi, imagine how crazy good that fight might be, but you know, similar styles there and i think that when you look at loma lukbunmi she might not be the crazy athlete that um tisha torres is but i think that from a striking skill perspective she's one of the best and i mean it's crazy to think that someone who's going to have a guaranteed you know she's an atom weight she's going to have a guaranteed size and reach difference but you almost want to give her the the, the, even the distance striking advantage. Cause I think Sam Hughes showed kind of good leg kicks and good jabs, things like that, but nothing of power that Loma should be fearing. You know, she took on Jin Frey and looked great in that fight. You know, Angela Hill, you know, Angela Hill took that fight on short notice, but at the same time, you know, came away with the win in what was a very hard fought battle. Those elbows, those clinch work. She's a Muay Thai style fighter. She's going to be bringing some serious damage. So if I'm Sam Hughes, you know, it's keeping that distance, using the leg kicks, maybe trying to, you know, get some damage where she's not able to throw so much power. And even maybe you can get up against the fence and work yourself into a takedown. Well, you know, the hard, that's easier said than done against Loma, who, who has not really seen much of the ground, right? For I think for how tiny she is and, and even for this division, 72% takedown defense. Like that's something that is very respectable, especially in fighting the fighters that she's taken on so far. And in this fight, you know, I'd be shocked if she wasn't the favorite. But I mean, at the same time, I the, the, the lengthier fighter, you kind of, it's so much easier to say this without being in there, right? But you think that they have that advantage to keep the distance. And if Loma's not able to really get into those clinch elbow type of situations like maybe Sam Hughes is able to avoid a lot of the damage that she does do. I mean, getting up against the fence on your back against the girl like Loma is not a good idea. You know, being able to maybe work your own type of groundwork against the fence, maybe eliminate that type of distance and keep that chin tucked, that kind of thing gets you a bit more opportunity to win. I'm really curious if she's going to come in there and try to keep that distance striking game going. She had success with that against Vanessa Demopoulos, like really good success. And so it's going to be interesting to see if she, she, you know, has confidence in that and just keeps rolling. But um, in that case, you know, if this stays standing, this is going to be an absolutely beautiful fight between two girls who, who definitely know how to throw, but again, technical striking, even from a distance, Loma, the way she's able to work in those quick strikes and come back out and keep her distance and re-kicks, I think that's going to be a huge, huge issue for Sam Hughes to deal with. And when we go check out the line, wow. Oh, man. So we're obviously looking at Sam Hughes now, I don't know, all the way of a plus 260 opening and still hovering at that plus 270, plus 260. Loma, my girl, minus 310 now at a minus 380 at some places. I mean, minus 400, a couple big spots. So 
I mean, I mean, that one's pretty straightforward, right? Loma's only 25 with a one-in-one UFC record and that loss being Angel Hill. Like, that's what I like about the girl. She's just such a gamer and I think she's the type of fighter that the UFC's trying to keep around because she's going to win the fights that, that, that are thrown her way in terms of just, I, I don't want to call them the lower end, not really ranked fighters, but that's what makes a lot of these, you know, long-time fighters the UFC stick around. It's the ability to win three fights against up-and-comers or prospects or even older uh, veterans, but then maybe have to take a loss against a top five or a top 10, even 15 type of fighter. That's where I think that Loma is a bona fide UFC fighter. And in this case, she's going to give Sam a really good test. I think that, you know, coming off of that uh, loss to Demopolis is going to be such a huge career uh, motivator to never land in that situation again. Cause at the end of the day, that was a title fight. And that's where I see this fight being extremely fun. I think that Loma is going to be obviously doing her big, you know, swanging and banging thing. And so Sam Hughes can deal with that. Look out in what is 100% a dark horse candidate for the fight of the night. We have Kai Kamak against TJ Brown. Now, a couple of things about TJ Brown that, you know, we didn't really like in the last fight, right? He was eating leg kicks like crazy. I think Danny Chavez burst out the UFC, you know, scene in a big way and was able to deal a lot of good damage to Chavez. And I don't think that Chavez was able to kind of stay in the striking game, but, but kept trying to fight for it. And that's where, you know, working with Bryce Mitchell at this uh, West side team, things like that, that's going to really, really help because in this fight, Kai Kamaku is training out of extreme couture. We've seen him work in the bags with Eric Nixick. I mean, come on. We know that this man is going to come in and bang. Let's look at the JSP fight. For me, that was one of the, if that wasn't one of the better fights of 2020, Tom Kelly and Kai Kamaka might be one of my favorite fights, if not my favorite fight of 2020. So underrated. And, you know, even going back and looking at some of those highlights, these guys were banging. And the one thing that I want to just completely praise Kai Kamaka for is his body work is so good. He throws good jab to the body. He's got great body kicks. I think that he can work up those legs in this upcoming fight. That's where, you know, if I'm JT Brown, and I know the kind of fighter that Kamaka is, you know, Kamaka's got good wrestling. I think that he's going to be able to defend a lot of that type of game. But at the same time, I, I can't help but feel it's just a smarter move to maybe look towards taking the takedown, get, it, get, it, get, get the top position, really beat down on him. If you look at the way... GSP found success towards the end of the first round against Kai. You know, he really picked up from there in the second and then even started winning a lot of the striking battles. Why? I felt like Kai Kamaka was getting a bit tired. The cool thing that I want to say is, you know, I've seen recent pictures of Kai Kamaka. He's been, you know, modeling the Venom shorts and stuff like that. And he looks a lot leaner. I want to say that he looks really good for the division um, at, at the way he, he's looking right now. And that should help him. I think that when you're cutting down a bit more and just have a leaner frame, it prevents you from tiring out a bit especially when you throw the way he does because he's all power man and what's funny is you could actually say in this fight you know Kai Kamak has the wrestling advantage with his 75% takedown accuracy but you know if I'm if I'm JT Brown and I see see what Kai Kamak can do on the feet it, it's just one of those things where why am I sitting and taking the damage I went up against a guy like Kai, uh, uh, Danny Chavez who was able to chop me down land big shots even rock me quite a bit in the second I think that's where you know as a fighter you have to just be smart about getting that W you know you can be exciting and you can want to get some bonuses but you know a win still works a lot better in the long run and I think if you try to avoid a lot of that power shots in the early parts of the fight you might actually make this a more opportune fight for yourself especially towards the end of the second if maybe you're not the same type of you know complete fighter that we see from JSP right now who's definitely on the rise and going to be talked about in a second here but 
you know, against the, a guy like Kai Kamak, who's just good everywhere. He's got a brother on the come up. He's training at the right gyms. He's making all the right adjustments. It's like you really do want to pick the spots where you can do your best work. And I just think from a striking area, I think Kai's just getting better. And you look at his 8-3 record, it's so misleading. Guy's only 26 years old. He's fought in great promotions against really good fighters. That's where I think, like – you know, losses in MMA are just such a different thing because they really can't just be such a, you know, positive builder in the long-term aspects of your career. Because even if you get tapped out in the first round, I mean, how much damage did you really take? But you definitely don't not to make certain mistakes like that again. And, you know, Kai's got so much versatility on the feet. You know, I, I just talked about his work in the body. I think that if he's able to really pick up from there uh, from the start and not really be too frightened of the, of the takedown game. I just think that TJ's Brown, TJ Brown's going to have a tough time on the feet. It's going to be a very tough fight on the feet. And when we look at the odds here. Yeah. I mean, you know, Kai Kamaka opened up at minus 185. It is now sitting at minus 150. So TJ Brown getting a bit more respect coming down to that plus 120 range. So obviously these guys are getting a bit more close in the fight. And I think that's where it should be. I think this is a fun fight. A, guaranteed dark horse for fight of the night. Uh, I think that if both guys come out banging, which they very well could, Kai Kamaka has a bit of an advantage there. Now, if he doesn't finish, which he, he actually doesn't finish much in, in the UFC, it's going to be interesting to see where this fight goes in the second and third, because I think that Danny Chavez's power really came out shining in his fight against TJ Brown. And, you know, if, if TJ Brown's able to kind of deal with some of these uh, heavier shots and, Definitely work it up against the fence. Get it to the ground. I think you have to get him off his feet and keep attacking because if you let Kai Kamaka plant and just keep throwing these bombs, he's got a great right hook. You know, these are the bombs that you're going to feel. These are the bombs that are going to make you, you know, not be as good in the third round, which is where I believe you can turn this fight around. And so that's going to be a fun one. I definitely think it's going to be, you know, one of those significant strikes. I can't believe how many they've thrown. And it's so funny because, like, talking about that fight leads us right into this fight because the JSP fight, you know, Jonathan Pierce, he's a guy that we're really excited about in the UFC and, and, you know, having that fight with Kai Kamaka where he found his ground uh, very much towards the end of that first round leading into the second. I think that's where, you know, we just talked about how Kai Kamaka, great left hook, always looking for the right power hands and things like that. You know, I think just Jonathan Pierce was able to really, you know, deal with that kind of pressure and and kind of work in the game plan that we're assuming um, JT Brown should utilize as well. But took over in the second, made it his fight in the third, and really came away with what looked to be a much more dominant victory towards the end there because Kai Kamaka is just not easy to put away. And when you're looking at this fight, you know, Gabriel Benitez, one of my personal favorites, not because of the nickname Mowgli from the Jungle Book, but, you know, Javier Mendez has been quoted saying that of all the guys, everyone in AK, like, like think about that. I mean, they're not the greatest um, striking team, obviously wrestling team, but the hardest um, he's ever had to hold pads for, right? This, these kicks are coming. These kicks are flying. They come hard as hell. Justin James took a massive liver shot. Uh, that knee pretty much ended the fight. But I think that even before that, you just saw really good kicks. The, the accuracy and, and just the crispness of his strikes are there. Uh, he's he's probably one of the better strikers in that gym, right? I mean, they the best part of him going into this fight is one of AKA's longest running uh, fighters getting to train with a bunch of those kinds of wrestlers. I mean, if you look at the way Jonathan Pierce utilized his game against the Kai Kamaka type of striker, 
I'm going to say being able to work with those wrestlers is going to come in handy, right? Jonathan Pierce is going to have to really make a difference here uh, in the grappling and close exchanges because if he's standing at distance trying to take kicks, I'm sorry to say, but they are going to break you. Everybody's human. Uh, I think that the accuracy and the way he throws those throws those kicks, you know, head, body, he's able to do it both ways. Uh, I think that that's the most deadliest part of his game. And so when you see that the strikes are, are pretty much right there, par for par with, with overall technique, he's just a really tough guy to stand with and i think that you know while while the ability is there especially in that first round to land those types of bombs you got to work away from that and it's going to be working through the kicks getting in close working up against the fence getting clinch work done i'm, I'm really going to be kind of shocked if this is just a stand-up fight because you know if, if i'm a guy that has to fight a, a, a guy like gabriel benitez it, it's going to be so hard for me to you know Tell myself in my head that I'm going to stand, I'm going to be able to trade, I'm going to be able to handle these kicks. It's just from a game plan perspective. It just seems like a hard fight. So for Jonathan Pierce, I mean, very similar to the last fight, right? Try to get a feel for the striking game, work in your shots where you can. You're definitely not going to be par for par, but at the same time, I think that he has the opportunity here to just find better spots. If you look at the past record of Gabriel Benitez and some of those losses, right? Omar Morales, he's a just, he was... He's going to be talked about a little bit here with Giga Chikadze, but he's able to take a real beating. And so when you can take a beating like that, I really think that that's kind of the part and parcel of dealing with Gable Benitez because even Justin James pretty much took a solid few shots before even getting finished by that liver. Uh, and, and he was landing. I, I felt like some of his punches were getting in there. He's got that big left hand that likes to throw. And I, I thought that was a, a really impressive, you know, start to his game. But at the same time, these are the big dogs. Sadiq Youssef, Omar Morales, like these are the losses he was eating. And in this case, I think that he's becoming more aggressive. We saw it in the, in the Justin James fight. He's looking a lot healthier. I feel like this is a guy who's had to deal with few injuries, which is why we haven't seen him a lot over the last three, four years. Uh, the big thing is moving back to Featherit, which is really, you know, exciting. I want to see him go back to his regular weight class, see if he's able to do some damage because even Justin James is fairly small for the, for the lightweight division. And, and I think Gabriel Benitez has good size for the featherweight division. So going back down, taking on a guy like Jonathan Pierce, who's a great athlete is going to be a great test for him. And again, find that rhythm. Take it to the ground. Avoid these big strikes. I think Jonathan Pierce is a tough, tough kid. And so if he's able to eat those, it's going to be a fun fight, man. And I think that a lot of people are going to be counting him out. Let's see for these lines. I mean, call that, right? I mean, let's be real. Gabriel Benitez at a minus 238, now dropping down to minus 210. People understand that's a bit high. I think that it's obvious that Gabriel Benitez is going to get so much hype now with how everybody's talking about him. But again, he's had that for a long time. Gabriel Benitez has been known for his kicks for just so long. You know, he's a tough, he's a tough vet. We've seen him on the scene for quite some time. And the Justin James finish, I think, is that recency bias. And right now on a line where, you know, Jonathan Pierce is coming all the way at plus 175, it's kind of interesting to see his line kind of move back up. But I think most of the line movement that you're seeing here is mostly for Gabriel Benitez coming back down to earth a little bit from his opening minus 238, minus 240 line. But uh, Jonathan Pierce is still looking like a plus 165 down from the plus uh, 175 range. And I think it's fair because of just how different the striking games are going to be. But again, MMA fighters are tough as hell. And if he's able to work through work through those strikes and, and get past them and, and really work in a ground game, I think we're going to see how good Gabriel Benitez's wrestling game is, you know, working with the guys at AK and how well he's able to kind of withstand a guy like Pierce who's going to keep coming forward for three rounds.
Trust me, guys, that one's when you just don't want to miss it. You know, this one's a really interesting fight for the female weight classes. You know, Random Marcos, you know, that's a tried, tested, and true type of fighter. You know, looking back on her career, fellow Canadian, so I got a bit of a soft corner for her, and I, I followed her career quite well. Hey, she's just got such an interesting, you know, path and, and UFC career because just to take you guys down a trip down, you know, old man UFC memory lane. She competed on an Ultimate Fighter where she actually got pretty far and ended up facing Rose Namajunas, who who lost the fight, or sorry, who won the fight against Randa Marcos and goes on to fight for the title and loses the inaugural UFC uh, Strawweight Championship. Now, funny enough, that fight was against Carla Sparza, who became the first UFC champion uh, of that division. Now, Randa Marcos goes on to beat Carla Sparza down the line, including fighters like uh, Angela Hill, which I think is a big deal. But, you know, when you think about it like that, loses to Rose Namajunas, you know, in the fight leading up to the title. Rose loses to Carla Sparza, but down the line, Carla Sparza lost to Randa Marcos. So Randa Marcos was basically a semifinal away from potentially being the inaugural strawweight champion of the UFC. So... You know, Randa Marcos has a very storied UFC career. If you're into women's MMA, like that's a fighter whose, you know, record is, is very worth taking the time to get to know because I think that she's paved the way quite a bit, not only for Canadian fighters, but just female fighters in general. And it's uh, she's fun to watch. She's had the grappling that's kept her in, you know, the top of the heat for so many years. But yeah, there's a, I think there's a, a very real switch in athleticism, overall ability, especially as strikers, you know, I think that you're seeing a very difference in, in what women are bringing to the table from just real, real athleticism in terms of just um, striking games. Rose Namajunas, like I know we talked about it like martial arts, but these are athletes, right? That Rose Namajunas kick is very athletic. The mentality, the timing, the body, physical aspects that go into landing a kick like that. It's just insane to think how hard that is and just how much striking is taking over the female weight classes. And I think, you know, Joanna Yen Jacek deserves a lot of credit for what she brought because from a technical perspective, even though she takes a lot of damage, I, I think that she was one that burst onto the scene and just really started stomping the yard and letting women know that, yeah, this is a new era and it's about time you get your striking game intact. So when you look at random Marcos, you know, Amanda Rebus, Murata Kanako, Mackenzie Dern, these are the losses she's taking. So, you know, competition is just in general, very tough. And she's obviously, you know, at the tail end per se of her career and taking on some of the better fighters that she needs to. And I'm excited to see what she does here. Trading out with Travis Luter and Kevin Holland, having a good time in Texas. I think this is a great camp for her. She looks in phenomenal shape. So I think that this is going to be one of those fights where she's severely, you know, undervalued just probably from a betting perspective and just from, you know, an experience perspective, because Luana Pinedo is one of those fighters where like, Oh, I just, I want to fall in love with her so badly. She's beautiful. She's deadly. It's like these perfect things that just line up for all of us, you know, MMA fans and lovers of combat sports. But at the same time, it's like, you go look at the one loss, you know, and it's almost like she has this way of fighting where it's blitz, 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 hooks, 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 hooks. And then, you know, even if she doesn't land the big knockouts or the big, you know, blows right away, she's able to work in this, you know, world-class judo. She comes from a long line of judo practitioners and is able to get submissions galore. So, you know, she took that loss and right after that just rips off, you know, six first-round finishes dating back to 2017. Like, she's no joke. And so for me, 
it's one of those things where I think of, we just talk about it, right? How many fights we've talked about the game plans where, you know, if you're able to withstand some of these blitzkriegs of some of these fighters who are just so exciting in the first round, it's really interesting what the second and third rounds can look like. So for me, Randa Marcos being the fighter who she is, taking on some of the fighters that she has, I mean, you know, in, 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 in retrospect, the wrestling really messed her up in some of her last fights. I think that she's just a true grappler in the, in the grand scheme of things, but has to be able to avoid being taken down where she's just completely on the bottom by good wrestlers or good strikers up against the fence because she's going to take damage. And in this case, it's like, you know, we saw Penny, for example, Penny snuck out a really interesting victory. You know, Lupe probably should have won that fight in a lot of people's eyes. And I think that, you know, that was a classic case of where maybe some of the judges really appreciated some of the grappling work and keeping it in close and, and just making her, power bomber all over the place. But that's the, that's what I'm kind of saying. I think that, you know, if you have to, you know, have a, have a fight to compare this to, it's a great one to compare it to because, you know, Luana's one loss is against a fighter who was able to withstand the first round barrage. And after that, the punches just became easier and easier, and easier to see. So, for me, it's like if you're just able to avoid those early barrages, it's, I, I don't even want to say if this is like the biggest, you know, underdog or favorite on here, but I feel like it has to be one of them. And I just think that it's because of the recency bias that we see with um, MMA betting in general. But, you know, let's take a quick look right now. Yeah, I mean, open at a minus 181, some place got down to minus 160, but minus 175, minus 188, some places. I mean, Random Marcos coming out of plus 164 opening down to plus 140, plus 150. I mean, I think there's value there. I think that Luana has very good skills. I mean, I would have expected this line to be a bit higher, so I'm not saying there's crazy good value. I think that there's an opportunity for Randa to be able to withstand some of the early round damage that we've seen from uh, Luana. But at the same time, I I think that's a harder task to just, you know, be able to just say you can do it and not come through because at the end of the day, she's been successful in the last six times she's done it. And, you know, there is tape to suggest that this is still doable. So obviously, uh, you know, Luana's going to get a lot better, but Rand has been working out like a dog and it looks like this is going to be a phenomenal fight to end off the prelims and kick off the main card. And I can't wait. It's so funny. And I really thought the last fight could have been the one that kicks off the main card because maybe some of the name value and Luana being, you know, who she is, but you know, there's going to be two Luanas here. So Luana number one is, is ending off the prelims and Luana number two, AKA uh, Luana Carolina is going to be taking on Paulina Botello and what kicks off the main card on Saturday. And, you know, this is an interesting fight. One of my favorite parts about it is the, 100% uh, takedown offense versus the 100% takedown defense in Botello and uh, Carolina, respectively. Uh, I think that this is a fight where you're going to see Botello really take that planted Muay Thai stance and just try to come in with a lot of power, probably push it up against the fence and really work in some of her Muay Thai jiu-jitsu uh, game. Because, you know, the thing about Carolina that I liked was we've seen her land blows, right? She's a very good technical striker. Uh, the catch away to fight. I mean... If you want to even enjoy a fight from even a slight comedy perspective, I mean, Sarfavek Safarov is in my um, goat tier uh, of that, um, you know, the Gian Volante and uh, Sarfavek Safarov fight will always be in a class of its own for me. But 
In this one, there's actually a moment where DC and Cruz enjoy a very friendly moment in between fights because this fight is actually enjoyable from a fan perspective. And you can tell that these guys were enjoying it from that perspective because if, even if there's a point in the second round where DC is kind of giggling and being like, man, these geeks are so good. She's not seeing them at all. They're landing from both sides. It was like the perfect commentary to kind of keep the giggles going because it was true. The nickname just held true in that entire fight. Cachueta was just taking head kicks square to the face and just not moving, pushing forward. And so you kind of gain respect for both fighters, both from an offense and defensive perspective and striking. But, you know, if you look at the direct stats here, that's where I kind of was. You know, we talked about how equivalent that offense versus defense, the takedown game is. But, you know, in the, in the striking landed and stuff like that, I just think that Luana has a bit more of an advantage, you know, especially in a Cachueta fight was probably in inflated some of her numbers here but I think that's going to be where she has to use the distance striking she has good kicks you know maybe if they're not the most powerful you know if your nickname is zombie girl you probably got a chin so keep playing your game maybe they do land against other fighters I think this is one where <coughs> you can really see uh, just how good both of these girls are you know the Lipsky fight was the one where she lost via, you know, first round submission. I think those are the things you're going to learn, right? In this case, you, you just got to keep playing your game. I think she is by trade a distance striker who's able to keep the fight on the feet, look pretty good against the fence, you know, and in in a couple wins there. So that's where you want to avoid uh, kind of dictating the pace. I think once it gets up against the fence, maybe she gets on her back, maybe for the first takedown ever. A girl like Mariana, or sorry, a girl like uh, Paulina Botello is going to be using the elbows, is going to be using the clinch work. She's a Muay Thai style fighter. So once the fight gets so close, and especially against the fence, you might start seeing the taller fighter taking big, big blows. Because one thing that we pointed out with uh, Luan, if you watch uh, the fights with um, uh, some of the commentary there, her neck is straight up like a dinosaur. Like she is just moving around like this, just waiting to get clipped. And so in this case, Baltella, who's bringing in a bit more power, a bit more strength, and is able to take that fight to the ground, you know, watch out for those big elbows. Watch out for that clinch work, clinch work because I think that's where she's going to find some success um, if it's not in the distance striking. And so when we quickly take a look at these lines, I mean, Baltello opened at a minus 165 and now sitting at a minus 275. I mean, off the bat, that's got to be one of the biggest line jumps across the board on this card. Uh, Luana Carolina getting no respect, um, opening at a plus 145, moving all the way to a plus 235. That's probably one of the most drastic changes I've seen. And I think that's fair in some ways because I think Botello's offense and the way she kind of brings the power is what Carolina seems to have issues with. I think that the zombie style fighting, I think that works in her favor where she's able to just kind of do her, uh, you know, big, big time combo strikes and not throw with too much power, but get that decision win. This is one where uh, I think that she's met her match in terms of the fight getting a bit more close, maybe losing the opportunity of, of keeping it on the feet for too long. I think that's where she's really going to be testing her jujitsu stuff like that. So keep it out. I don't think the UFC is making any mistakes by making this a fight on the, on the main card. It should be exciting whether it finishes on the ground or on the feet. There's a good chance that one of these girls come out with a big finish. So, you know, keep your eyes locked for that one. You know, it's really funny. Merv is one of those fighters that I, uh, 
it's just he's he's really fun to watch outside of the octagon. You know, he's kind of the ringleader with this whole Aljo thing. If you really look at the behind the scenes, he's having a good time with it. I think that he's one of those guys where, you know, if you're not the one fighting him, you can have a good time with it, right? Falling in a lakes and missing fights. I think Cody Stamen and him have some bad blood. But you know, Marev kind of has this really fun, loving aspect to him, which makes him a little hard to hate. But again, if you're the guy fighting and missing fights, stuff like that, it probably catches up to you. So, you know, in this fight, I, I you know even just in terms of staring, steering away from how we usually do things. I mean, I would almost say the first takedown here is probably going to dictate something, right? You know, if one guy is able to get the other guy to the ground in what is, you know, pretty much equal 80 to 80% takedown defense, it's going to dictate a lot of the fight, right? You know, that Marib comes in with these amazing leg kicks. The guy landed 30 on Dodson. So for me, you know, if you're able to land those, and I mean, you know, Dodson's a natural fly, he's a much smaller guy, but landing 30 leg kicks perfectly, 30 for 30s, is just a huge deal for me. And I think that in this case with Cody Stamen, who likes to plant and throw, plant and throw, good boxing, not as well developed as Jimmy Rivera's, which is what we saw in his fight against Jimmy, but he was able to incorporate some of the things that kept the fight close. Some judges even gave him that second round. He's able to kind of close the distance. He's able to use some of his striking and, in this case, it's going to be avoid those leg kicks, right? Don't let your power shots, um, you know, diminish based on those things. I think Marib's going to constantly be looking for leg kicks and pushing the fight forward into the clinch, looking for takedowns and using that wrestling. Because the one thing I want to give Marib a lot of credit for is in terms of his actual uh, overall game, you know, having such good leg kicks, having the wrestling to then go to Ray Longo and make this your home and, and pull all that together. He's one of those guys that's really, really fun to watch because – if, if, if MMA is a chess game, Merib has one of the really most coolest um, styles that you can kind of, you know, see a start and finish in his fights, right? So if you're a guy that's going against that, again, avoid that wrestling, avoid that leg kick, uh, and especially early because he's going to start, you know, really picking away at you. And I think Cody will have that ability, but again, it's getting into that boxing range for him, avoiding some of the wrestling, being able to use the clinch work, getting away from the fence, little things like that. Because again, if maybe Cody wants to surprise him and maybe put him against the fence and take him down real quickly, use some of his own wrestling, maybe that dictates a little bit. He can use some of the ground and pound to kind of, you know, put some of his own licks together. Because uh, the one thing I, I really want to say is I, I I find this fight so close. You know, I think Cody's going to be the better overall striker. But again, Marib's kicks are, are powerful. They land. And I think that's a big thing. And I just said, you know, when you see what a fighter can put together from start to finish, you know, Marib working you down with leg kicks, chops you down, softens you up. Then he's able to get you up against the fence or even an open space and wrap those legs or get a good body lock. He'll take you down with technique. And right now, I have to say he's had one of the most underrated 2020s that nobody's really talking about, right? When you look at just the overall record, I have it written down here, you know, let alone his um, his undefeated 2020, it's Casey Kenny, Gustavo Lopez, and John Dodson. I mean, that those are those are big, big, big fights to me. And I think that's where you're looking at a Cody Stamen fight who's coming off of that Jimmy Rivera win. I mean, Marib's getting really, really close to that top five-ish territory where he's going to start, you know, um, turning some heads to that contender picture, title picture, because this is going to be a big fight for him. And if he comes away with that dub, poor statement for one, but at the same time, like Marib's really turning into that huge contender that people have been waiting to see. And, you know, unfortunately for that injury, we didn't get to see both these guys in action a little bit more over the last, you know, six months or so. But again, Cody statement, I think the boxing in close is going to make a big difference. I think that's where he, we really just see how good he is in comparison because, you know, 
I think that especially with the catching of kicks, checking them, like these are areas where you can get good. And if he's able to avoid them, I mean, let's see if he's able to pull it off. Because as you can tell with my tone of voice, do I think that Stamen's the underdog? For sure. So let's check it out. Wow. Wow. Okay. So Herb's coming in at a minus 250 opening and probably sticking around there with minus 265 and minus 275 on some sites. Cody Stamen, I mean, plus 185 opening and plus 210, plus 215 on some sites. I mean, I'm a little surprised by that line, but I guess maybe I've got some goggles on here. Um, you know, Merib seems to be the very safe pick here in terms of the overall wrestling and the leg kicks. And like I said, you know, if, if MMA is a chess game, this guy's doing a very, very good job in building his start and end. And you could know how a fighter is going to fight and he could be putting a lot of pieces together when it comes to his start to finish. But it's a really impressive start to finish so far. And I think last year he proved that he belongs in that top 10 and he's getting a fight right now to prove if he believes in the top five and Cody Stamen has to play gatekeeper. And, you know, I think he's up to the challenge. So we should be looking at what could be another fight of the night. If I haven't been saying it overall in this whole card, the UFC's done a fantastic job of putting together these striker versus striker battles. Maybe when it's not, you know, a great striker versus a bad striker or anything like that, but just two guys that you can visualize or two ladies that you can visualize that when they do battle, it's going to be just this beautiful, um, you know, maybe you're overanalyzing it pre-fight and it turns into one thing when you watch it live, but it's just got so much value. And let's take a look at Sean Strickland and Christoph Jotko. I mean, for me, Sean Strickland, I feel like this is one of those few fighters where I'm going to be like one of those weird fanboys where if I ever meet him, he's going to be like, oh, you're such a loser. Like, just punch me in the face. I love you now. Because I've been watching this guy for like eight, nine years. You know, we go back to the KOTC days with that long, flowy hair. I mean, you know, we're one in the same, at least we used to be. And he was such a phenomenal kid to watch, right? Very raw. And I watched a really great interview with him and he talks about how he was basically, you know, on the verge of going to jail as a kid and his coach picked him up and showed him the ropes. And by 15, he was basically a pro level fighter taking out guys who are much older than him and just worked his way up as an overall fighter. And when you think about his record, I mean, I just, I, I marveled by it because I used to see him a lot younger. He had a motorcycle accident, which kept him from the UFC for a little bit longer, which really prolonged his overall because when you think about it, three losses, right? Santiago Ponzinibbio, Kamaru Usman, and probably the most perfect spinning heel kick you'll ever see in your life. It's his only finish by KO, and Zaleski deserves all the credit in the world for landing that beautiful kick. But I mean, in those three losses, those are basically it. He had a hilarious press conference earlier, kind of shitting on Brendan Allen and just what he thinks of him as a fighter and how he finished him. And there's zero chance of him ever accepting a rematch against him unless it's down the line in some type of title picture of some, some weird, you know, I guess virtual <laughs> reality because he seems absolutely uninterested in that. He really wants the Kamaru Usman uh, rematch, but he's guaranteeing he won't ever be making 170 again for the rest of his life. And so again, he looks like a phenomenal 185-er. I think the Brendan Allen fight just proved how good his striking was. He's a talker in there. I like it. Just a hit kid who enjoys fighting. And that's what we kind of like from the fighters, right? At the end of the day, you know, there's going to be money reasons. There's going to be passion reasons, but he has fun in there. And I think that's what makes him such a fun fighter to watch. I think watching his come up as a kid, dealing with such adversity with that motorcycle accident, all those little things just add up as you have more fun and, and follow a fighter. Right. And I think that with his come up and all the adversity he's gone through and, and now, you know, coming back from that motorcycle accident and looking like a true contender at middleweight, 
I don't think anything can go more perfect for him. And so you look at a guy like Jotko, who we haven't seen as often as you'd expect, you know, taking on a 22 and three Strickland, he's coming in at 22 and four. And, you know, in, in watching the Eric Anders fight, which is his only fight in 2020, dating back to, you know, July 2019, he hasn't been that active since his triple loss to David Branch, Brad Tavares, and Uriah Hall. The Uriah Hall and Brad Tavares losses are actually finishes. And, you know, those are the things that really stood out to me because as I'm watching the Eric Anders fight, like we know how good of a strikers, you know, Brad Tavares in terms of power and Uriah Hall in terms of technique and power, they can be, especially in that heyday that they had. But in this fight, you know, Eric Anders just, he's such a bulky guy and he fights a, he fights a very tough fight. But when you look at the way Jotko throws, I mean, he does get a bit tired after the first round. And the one thing that I think is going to work against him against Sean Strickland is he kind of throws broken punches and kicks. So it's a lot of ones here and a lot of ones there. They're, they're not really put together. And as he gets tired, I find that that happens more often to him. And, you know, when you're going up against a guy like Sean Strickland, who's proving to have really good combos, especially with his hands, it's, it's not something that I'm um, I'm really um, you know interested in Jocko as as a striker because I think this is going to be a tough fight for him. But when you look at the way he fought against Eric Anders, I think it just needs to be a little bit more controlled, right? Maybe not go so crazy in the first round, especially a guy against against a guy like Strickland who actually has great cardio. I, I think that if that Brendan Allen fight went to the third round, you're just going to see a guy get really really bloodied up. I think that's the way that fight would have gone. And right now you're looking at Strickland taking another fight against the guy who could potentially fade in the second and third round. So Strickland doesn't really need to worry about managing his cardio, maybe keeping his hands up, you know, maybe avoiding some of these big knockouts from strikes that he might not see. But again, Jotko was throwing with a lot of like the one big body kicks, the one big leg kicks, things like that. And I think those are things that Strickland can deal with. I think that Jotko is going to have to put a lot of combination together, attack first, not let Strickland uh, basically unload some of these combos that helped him knock out Brendan Allen. I think that if this fight goes to the ground, he'll be a little bit more uncomfortable, but he's a great, he's, he's great on the ground too. When you look at some of the closer stats between these guys, for me, you know, takedown defense of 81% on Strickland's side and 87% on Jotko's side. So for me, I'm, I know that I'm going to be looking at a striking battle. What kind of throws this fight off for me is when you look at just the overall, you know, absorb per minute. I mean, these guys are really good defensive fighters, right? The 3.77 on Strickland's side, but he's got such a lengthy and damaging UFC career. But then the Jotko's 1.9. You know, 1.9 with 58% defensive striking only lands about 2.98. So that's what I'm saying, right? When you look at the strikes related per minute on Sean Strickland's side over five, you, you kind of get an idea of what I'm getting at here too, right? He's going to throw a lot of volume. He's going to throw a lot of combos. Jocko is going to be trying to land these bigger shots, these, these, these much more powerful shots that might make the noise and maybe get you a, a you know, a, a rocked body that can help you maybe, you know, get some top position and finish with a, a submission or ground and pound, things like that. But I think Strickland's a lot tougher than some of the other fighters that he might've taken on where that's worked. And this is a fight where he's really going to have to manage that cardio, but also push the pace in ways where he can see openings, get some combos off and maybe avoid getting into these much deeper striking battles where I think Strickland's going to have the advantage. And so quickly, let's take a look at this um, line here, but wow. Again, right. Sean Strickland minus two seven five opening coming a bit down to minus two sixty, but you know, that's a definitive uh, favorite. I'm sorry. I'm just going quickly through here, you know, probably second to Loma, right? Loma is the biggest favorite on the card. And I would say, you know, it looks like Sean falls right in there as the second. I don't disagree with this line by any means. I think Jocko's got a lot to prove. And I think he's about to take on a volume striker. Who's quite accurate.
And the thing is, if, if, you know, Jocko doesn't unload past that 2.98 mark against a guy like Strickland, who's going to be putting combos together galore for a good three rounds if he has to. It's going to be a tough fight. And judging by these defensive uh, takedown abilities, I don't think these guys are going to want to take it to the ground. So, you know, very tough fight for Jocko. But I, th- I think if he's able to manage the energy in the first and try to work in his own striking in the later rounds, he might be able to pull off the upset decision here. You know, one thing about me is you'll never, ever hear me say I dislike a fighter, publicly at least. But the funny thing about Ian Kutelaba is that in just everything that's happened over the course of his career, it's just, I can't seem to fall in love with the guy because even around that ankle of time, it was such a ridiculous situation where I felt like all it really did was prolong both of their careers. You know, the first fight was just an interesting case overall. I think Anklev was going to win that fight anyways. But then the way it played out, Kutelab was able to get a uh, second attempt in that fight, which he lost very decisively anyways. And so I think we were very far removed from having fun with the Hulk paint at the weigh-ins and stuff like that, because he does have a lot to prove as a UFC fighter. And I really did like him in the beginning. You know, I thought he was personable. I thought he was very exciting. He's always rushing for that finish in the first round, but you know, you get to a point where you fight the better fighters and you need to be a bit more disciplined. And the one thing about Kute Labo we're finding is the discipline is just very far removed from where he should be at, at least in his UFC career at this point. The ankle left fight taught him that, I think, in the, in the hard way. And he's getting another guy like Dustin Jacoby, right? Jacoby's a guy that I fell in love with last year because when you look at his come up in the UFC, it was one of the best in the pandemic, right? One of the most fun fighters to follow. Go look at his Ty Flores win on the day a contender series because if you're one of these guys casual or not i don't really care um the striking was beautiful i mean if i'm ty flores's you know corner unfortunately you don't really want to throw in a towel on a dana white contender series fight but you know if i'm watching my student or anything like that just take that kind of damage and i know he'd be really upset after the fact it's just there was no clear path of victory for him at all and he was getting pieced up on the feet till the very end i think dustin jacoby's starting to look a lot better on the ground but again he's a glory kickboxing fighter that's coming back to the ufc and i think he's putting it all together now where he's able to at least avoid some of the groundwork because i think that's the most important part for dustin because I think that from a striking perspective, he's one of the best uh, at this like division. He, he's, he's very crisp. He's looking like he's, you know, defensively avoiding a lot of the shots. That's what I like the most about him. But let's talk about that mixing Grisham fight, right? I think that was a fight where you saw two good kickboxers kind of level out a bit. And, and I think Grisham was really underrated in that fight in terms of striking. You know, he was probably going to try to take it to the ground a bit more, but you know, I love the fact that Jacoby's got a 70% takedown defense with 100% accuracy on his takedowns. That's a huge, huge positive for a guy who's pretty much being looked at as a complete kickboxing fighter. And, you know, you look at the Ledette fight. I mean, that was a complete, you know, destruction. I think that was one of my favorite fights of his overall because he came out of the Flores fight and it's, oh yeah, Dana with contender series, NBA G League style. But then just, you know, unloads on Ledette who also has, you know, UFC wins under his belt. So, you know, going into the Grisham fight, I thought that win was going to be the one that if he gets it kind of takes him to the next level and so now we got a guy like Kute Laba who in my opinion is getting a nice little um let's call it not a gift but an opportunity right because he was the guy that was losing 
Glover Teixeira, and then sneaking out wins against Khalil Roundtree, then losing to Ankalev twice. The big thing, Godzimur Antigulov just got caught with guns in his house, by the way. That's a whole different ball game. But, you know, those are the wins that he put together before eating a guy like, you know, Glover Teixeira, who is world-class now fighting for a title. So for me... It's about time that Kutelaba hits the reset button. It's about time that he gets a fighter like Dustin Jacoby, where, you know, I don't actually, I'm not calling him bad because I think I just raved about Jacoby. I just think that Kutelaba needs to really gauge what kind of fighter he is in the UFC in 2021. Because for me, I haven't been impressed with what we've seen from before. And a lot of the fun in games that we kind of saw in that ankle left fight just turned me off a little bit because it was the only reason that got prolonged. And Ankalev proved that he was the winner anyway. So for me, this is a great opportunity for him to take on a veteran of just combat sports in general, see what he's got, conserve the energy, do not rush in the first round, and see if he can grind out a fight against the guy who you should have the grappling and ground game advantage against. Very much so. And, you know, let's take a look at the lines right now. Much closer than I would have expected, right? Kute Laba getting the respect he deserves because I think as a ground fighter who might be able to avoid some of the power strikes and even some of the technical battles is now coming in at a minus 140 and open at a minus 160. You know, Jacoby opening at a plus 140, getting down to a plus 110. I mean, we're pretty much saying that this is an even fight, right? It looks like people were just jumping on Jacoby at that price. And now we're getting it a little bit closer uh, to that even mark. I think that this is a great test for Jacoby. I'm actually a little surprised that he's the underdog because of how good this striking game has proven to be. But again, this could also be me, recency bias, right? Kute has proved himself against big-time fighters. And the fact that his losses are against guys like Glover and Ankalev actually speaks more about him than it does about, say, uh, you know, going into a fight like Jacoby, where it kind of makes him look a lot worse than he really is. And, you know, Jacoby's now taking on probably his biggest competition in his UFC career. So I'm really excited for it. I think that both these guys are going to bring their A game. I would just love to see Kute go back to his old ways of just, you know, have fun in it, but also make sure that you're doing the right things. You know, you, not everybody's going to be able to finish, you know, get the finish in the first round. And what are your backup plans? Because just seeing a guy who if it isn't able to get, get it done that way, kind of fade and get finished himself or lose a decision. I want to see him put it all together uh, in the UFC before it's too late. And, you know, I think against a guy like Dustin Jacoby with that experience under his belt is a really good test. So I'm excited for it. Oh, all right. You know, I thought, let me, let me try to get through this one quickly, you know, because this is just a fight I wish wasn't happening. If this could go to a draw where nobody gets hurt, I would just be a happy, happy camper and let both of them take over somewhere else, someone else. You know, if I had a favorite old time fighter in this division and a favorite new time fighter in this division, they're fighting each other already. Giga Chikadze is easily my favorite fighter of 2020. Um, I think Kevin Holland, I boosted him enough to the point where everybody already knew about him and I didn't want to talk about him anymore because I was hearing so much about him that, you know, Giga is one of those people that, you know, I was really trying to start that hashtag and that chat, Giga, 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 because he's hella exciting, man. I think that both him and Cub Swanson are just going to bring an absolutely crazy striking battle to this fight. Um, now, I'm going to get into Giga because, like I said, he's probably one of my favorite fighters coming out of 2020, if not my favorite, because I couldn't shut up about Kevin Holland and enough people started talking about him. But let me talk about Cub Swanson because, like, I'm still hunting for that killer Cub shirt and all those different colors. If I, have, if I could have six of those in different colors, I'd be a happy camper. But, you know, this man is just 
one of the greatest fighters to ever grace the UFC, WC, whatever. And I'm going to break it down. Why? Uh, for one, you know, big shout out to Cub. You know, he lost his uh, longtime manager and friend, Kami, big part of his family. And in 30, I think that number was 37. But in those number of fights, this will be the first fight that Cub does not have Kami in his corner. And I know that's going to be a very emotional experience for him and his family. And I can only imagine what, what something like that really feels like when you have to actually still go into the cage after becoming so used to something and having that kind of support. And let's talk about some of the things that's happened to Cub, right? first of all, the biggest factor of his career that I want to touch on, when you go through his UFC career before the Shane Burgos and Renato Moicano fights, every single loss on his career is either a ex-champion or someone who has fought for a belt. Every single loss before the Moicano and Shane Burgos fight. So that's a crazy stat when you think of the guys that he's fought in his life. There's only one person to finish him clean strikes. And I'm going to let you guess who that was. Yes, Jose Aldo, ding, 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 ding. Um, there's just, he's fought everybody, right? And if you date back to the WC days and count those as UFC fights, which I do because they did not have weight classes for the small weight classes, and 99% of the fighters that you loved that came into the UFC in those weight classes were from the WEC. Shout out Dominic Cruz. Uh, and so when you combine his WEC fights with his UFC fights, he actually falls in and around that top 10 of total UFC fights in, with Glayson Tebow and Frankie Edgar. You know, you look at what happened to him with the uh, Jake Shields grappling match. You know, that was something where, you know, Jake Shields talked about how he could hear the pops and stuff like that. And he got off of him as well, uh, the moment he could. And, you know, people say it's it's a controversial, uh, you know, finish there with the, with the knee move that he pulled off. But at the same time, you know, even though the, the, the um, IBJJF doesn't really, you know, count for that. I think that if the, if it's not in the rules, things like that, you can't really harp on the fighter or the grappler for that situation. In this case, you know, Cub had a long recovery after that. That was an ACL uh, injury. You know, people were calling for nine months, stuff like that. So think about what Cub's, Cub's going through at that point. You know, nine month layoff, Kami passing away. So going into this fight, it was it was massive, and, and you know. I can't wait to get into this one because I think I'm going to blow a load, but uh, I didn't mean to say that, you know, and my favorite part about that Pineda fight. I mean, so we just talked about it, right? The Jake Shields injury layoff coming into this fight. Now we know this was the last fight. Kami was even in the corner form and how amazing was that performance? Okay. So you see him, basically taking all the leg kicks in the world to that busted leg, no problem. You can see the damage. He keeps coming. Even at the end of the first, you know, Cub starts to land some power blows and Pineda's feeling that power. He starts to feel it real bad. Round ends. You know, probably a pretty close round, you know. And now, like if you're a Cub fan and you're watching this second round, I'm sorry. If you're not out of your seat, I don't know what the hell you were doing during that round. But I was almost in tears when that fight ended because you can basically see in that moment where Cub does start to land. You know, it's absolutely insane. But, you know, he switches to southpaw in the second round. And then, you know, just to protect the knee, just to protect the knee. And the corner was begging for Pineda to just attack that injured leg, attack that injured leg, because they could see that Cub was coming alive. And, you know, he defends a takedown, comes out of that, works his way out of the fence with punches, and then just lands the cleanest blow, just the cleanest. It was just the biggest uppercut that it was left, right, and just, oh, it was... 
It was the greatest moment a Cub Swanson fan or a Cub Swanson family member or friend or whatever could, could ever experience. And, you know, the fact that he came back from that and the fact that he pulled off the win the way he did, it's just one of the greatest stories that I feel like no one's really talking about in MMA, which really deserves such a pat on the back because, you know, Cub's been doing this for a very long time, a very long time. And to be honest, he's probably my top 10 fighters of all time because of the things that I've seen him do. And so to see him get that win, for that to be the last fight that he had caught in his corner, you know, uh, I just can't believe how happy I am for him. And, and you know, this is the one where it's going to make or break, right? He's playing gatekeeper now against the guy. Now I can go off on Giga a little bit. You know, he's a guy that I absolutely love and I've been going off about him for so long, the 5-0, and and I think that's why I get to harp on him just a little bit because before the Data White Contender Series, he participated in the Gladiator Challenge. And I got to say, when I'm really into this opponent record kind of thing in terms of analysis, Giga's got one of the worst I've seen because in the Gladiator Challenge, you know, the World Series of Fighting uh, opportunity that he got as an MMA fighter because he's primarily a kickboxing fighter. You know, he jokingly said, you know, the guy hugged me for so long, I thought he loved me more than my wife did. And so he got that fight as the first loss in his pro career. But then he goes to Gladiator Challenge to pick up where he left off as an MMA fighter. And so the first fight he takes on a guy who's 0-1, gets the win. And then, you know, it's just crazy to see. Goes up against a debutante and then a 1-24 combined opponent record. And I'm not joking. Like, one of these guys was 0-13 and the other guy was 1-10. And, and those were the fights that kind of propelled him. Got the Dana White Contender Series shot. And so that Austin Springer fight, you know, he, he kind of got a little tired towards the end. I thought he was doing great work in the beginning. He's got power for days. He's definitely looking like one of the best kickboxers we've got in the UFC. You know, he switches stance to Southpaw to throw that beautiful giga kick, right? That power body kick. Boom! It's like a gun that gets thrown off. And those are the things that Cub's going to want to look out for, right? Because a lot of those power shots to the legs, to the body, that's where Cub, I think, can, you know, very much lose this fight, especially over three rounds. You know, he's got to really push that pace forward. He's going to have some speed. He's going to have some creativity, footwork, those things. That's what's going to play into his favor. And now, you know, if Cub's feeling really, really hunky-dory about his wrestling and his grappling, to the, you know, this is a fight to take advantage of it because I think Iga has proven his striking ability. His takedown defense has been there in the UFC. But, like, this is the toughest fight of his career. And if Cubs able to bring that game, I think it's going to pose a little bit more of a problem than, than Giga thought because even that Austin Springer fight where he was pretty much winning the fight, in my opinion, in that third round, you kind of saw him getting a little tired and then Austin just took the back, got the choke and was able to pull off that victory. Now, funny enough, Giga goes back to his gladiator challenge friends and, you know, two and 31 after those two fights were the combined opponent record. So just to kind of clarify all of that, the combined opponent record of that gladiator challenge experience that include two debutantes is three and 56. So when your combined opponent record is three and 56, but you go five and zero in the UFC, tell me that is not the biggest outlier in using combined opponent records and determining UFC success you've ever seen in your entire life. Because it sure as hell is, is that for me. I, I couldn't believe it when I did the numbers on this. And again, King's MMA is, is a new home for this guy. And I think that when you look at everything he's putting together as a UFC fighter, we're seeing the development there. We're seeing that those guys were just in the bad place, wrong time. Who knows who Giga would have been taken on no matter what, because the, the trajectory of success and improvement is all there. And I think that's where Cobb, you know, in terms of everything we just, you know, couldn't stop talking about all of his good and all of his heart and all that kind of stuff, you know, 
he's getting a very serious, powerful kickboxer coming his way. And I think Iga is going to have the ability to really land those power shots. If this doesn't go up against the fence and it doesn't go, you know, down to the ground and Cub is usually the guy that's looking for those quicker shots, great combos, very creative, can switch the stance. Like we said, was able to protect the leg uh, against Pineda. So those are the little things that I'm very excited about. And so we'll see how that goes in the long run, but outside of that, probably my favorite fight in the card. I wish they didn't have to fight, but they will. Good Lord, you know, let's look at this. Giga Chikadze opened up a minus 238 favorite against Cub as this plus 175 dog. And I mean, let's be real. I'm not, I mean, I would have been shocked if that was the line right now. And it's a, it's a lot closer now at the minus 170 and the plus 145, plus 130 range. And I think this is a bit more fair. I think Giga is bringing this very, very powerful style kickboxing to the uh, UFC. I think that having a finishing move like the Giga kick always brings a little bit extra boost in both the betting and fanfare and all that stuff. And, you know, Cub Swanson is one of the guys that are aging. You know, he's coming off these things like losing his, you know, friend and manager and, and a lot of these, you know, bigger style injuries that, you know, he was able to look really good against but he's going to carry that over against uh, Giga Chikadze, who's a lot more powerful and probably a much better uh, kicker and kickboxer overall. So exciting fight, praying that these guys, you know, stay healthy after this and it's nothing too crazy, but probably one of the most exciting fights of 2020, you know, for any big fan of either one of these guys. And I can't wait. All right, guys, last on the list, you know, here Proxa, you know, the rise in, from rising one all the way to now, we've just seen him have a completely massive rise. He was able to make up for that Muhammad Lawal um, loss, you know, early on in his career by winning the light heavyweight title at rising over Muhammad Lawal. And, you know, in the Vulcan Ozdemir fight, you know, people were criticizing him a lot for the talking and the taunting and stuff like that. And he did eat a lot of damage, but, uh, at the end of the day, in that second round, I think he just did what he had to do to win that fight. And, you know, he does look like a very dangerous striker. I think that when you look at some of the kick power and just what he throws with, those are the more frightening things that he brings to the table. But Dominic Reyes talked a lot about the mental game and how, you know, everyone's saying it, how he underestimated Jan. And for me, from a technical perspective, I think it was just the Polish power, right? I think that he did not see how good that left hand could be. I even thought, despite, you know, all that bruising and everything, he was trying to make a little bit of a second win there in the second round. But unfortunately, like I said, that Polish power came out of nowhere from that left hand and it just completely rocked him. Um, that was, that was a fighter who, who looked like he didn't expect what was coming his way and he paid the price. And you look back at his fights, you know, Chris, my, when I talked about it last week, he was able to kind of slow motion, see his future and land that winning punch that got him into the whole realm of, you know, UFC title contender in the first place, John Jones distance, OSP distance. Like these are guys, and you know, the thing is, Again, we talked about the MMA math and stuff like that, but he also went to a distance with Vulcan Ozdemir, and it was a split decision, right? So one of those things that I really enjoy about watching both these guys fight is I think that you're going to see a technical striker in Dominic Reyes who has crazy power in his, in his hands, but at the same time, you know, I, so, so does Yuri Proxa. And I think that Yuri, if he's, if he's letting off really, really early in the first and second, maybe Dominic Reyes has a chance in the, in the cardio department later in the fight. Because I think that's where if Dominic Reyes stays focused and doesn't take big, big power shots, kind of similar to what he did against um, Jan. Jan was very disciplined that whole time, man. He waited for his shots. You could tell that whole fight, He even though he was playing that one shot, one shot, one shot game, they were landing with authority. 
you know, he was bruising him with every shot. And, and I think that goes to show just like where he was coming from. You know, if you look at Reyes, you know, four of his six wins are first round finishes. Like the guy had a very meteoric rise and fought the right people. That's the part that I love absolutely about his game. And I do think that he has an opportunity here to, to win. And it's kind of similar, right? I want to talk about how, you know, in the Kimbrough fight, it's a pretty old fight, but that's a great fight for him to kind of mimic, right? He was fighting a striker who was actually running in a lot and throwing big blows. And you could hear Joe Daddy, Joe Daddy Stevenson, one of the old-time fighters and his main coach, kind of yell, Matt Hughes, Matt Hughes. And I think Joe Rogan actually talks about how that's a Matt Lehman thing, how he's really notorious for having funny names and things like that for some of his techniques and game plans. But, you know, he's yelling the Matt Hughes, the Matt Hughes, Matt Hughes, and he goes for the takedown, and he starts to work that style of his game. I think this is the perfect fight for Dominic Reyes to kind of incorporate something similar because the standing and trading is going to be exactly what Yuri wants, especially early. Now, if you can get past some of those strikes, use your power less, use some of those kicks that have gotten you to this place, you know, attack those legs, get him slower. I think that's what Dominic needs to do to really get back to the, to the way he was doing things. He talked about how, you know, using social media, replying to fans, being, you know, you know, overrun by trolls, stuff like that really affected his game. And, you know, MMA is all mental. And I think stepping away from that focusing more on his game getting better in those areas are going to be what makes him a champion someday and in this case he really does have to avoid some of that craziness early right I think he could be the better fighter for the last two and a half to three rounds so for me it's like what can you do in the first two to avoid some of that damage because if he maybe learned Jan or slowed Jan down maybe that power left wouldn't have come so hard you know that's the beautiful stuff that I love from from Reyes especially over the you know early part of his career, you know, some of the wrestling too is just going to come much, much more handy in this fight than it might have in the previous case. Cause Jan we've seen even against Israel was definitely game for that. And Jan's a different ball game. Glover's going to have that opportunity, but this is a comeback fight for Dominic Reyes. And this is a proven fight for Procha. I think that after one fight against Vulcan, despite it being such a clean finish, you know, the guy really got boosted pretty quickly in the rankings. And, you know, he's now in a fight where he does have to prove that. Is this a classic case of the UFC pushing a guy a bit too hard, but I think that the record speaks for itself. 11-0 dating back to, you know, Ryzen 1 in that sense without that Muhammad Lawal loss. So, I mean, outside of all of that, it's just a really fun fight, right? I think it's going to be very exciting. And I think that if Proxia is able to let loose early and really find some of that left-hand power, it might be what kind of changes Dominic Reyes again. But again, very easy, easy fixable situations for Dominic. And I think that's where we're going to see things transition in this fight. And it's going to be an interesting one. So quickly taking a look at the lines, I mean, getting very close, right? Proxa coming in as a favorite, but Dominic Reyes still hovering as that minus, you know, sorry, that plus 110, plus 100 somewhere. So this fight's about to become a pick em. I'd be very surprised if it doesn't. And, you know, I'm personally leaning Dominic Reyes only because I think that the things he can fix should help him in a fight where Yuri might get tired later in the fight, but he's also a crazy wild man with very accurate striking. And I think that if Dominic Reyes isn't disciplined and isn't picking his shots well and isn't looking out for both sides because he's really good at looking for the powerful right hands, he's going to have a issues with Yuri, but this is an incredible card. I think a lot of strikers and a lot of finishers are going to showcase some of their skills here. And, you know, they have a huge task to fulfill by following up UFC 161, but I think across the board, we have a perfect fight card to make that happen. So I can't wait for the fights. Don't forget my, uh, Goku inspired picks will be up on Instagram and hit that bell, get the likes and the follows going. I appreciate all the support till next week. Peace.